Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, welcome to Inside the Hive, where we're going deep on Fox and the right-wing media machine. I'm Brian Stelter, and on this week's show, the future of Fox News without Tucker Carlson and the future of Tucker Carlson without Fox News. It's been more than a week since Carlson was suddenly shockingly fired and everyone's speculating what he's going to do next, where he's going to go next. For his part, Tucker is not showing his hand. For now, at least, he's acting like he's having this dreamy summer vacation. As for Fox, is the network better off without Tucker? Well, editorially, probably, but financially, absolutely not. Ever since Carlson's show was canceled, Fox has been shedding viewers, especially in primetime, especially in his old time slot. Some nights, more than half the audience that was there for Carlson is gone. They have disappeared. And we will talk about where some of those viewers have fled. So joining me here now, Vanity Fair staff writer Charlotte Klein. Welcome, Charlotte. Thanks, Brian. And Jason Zangerly, writer-at-large for The New York Times Magazine. Welcome, Jason. Hey, how are you? Hey, so you've been working on a book about Carlson and the conservative media for several years now. (laughs) So I have to ask, did you know this was going to happen? Like, this is one of the most dramatic moments in Fox history, in right-wing media history. Did you know Carlson was about to get fired? No, I uh, I had actually <laughs> blocked off that Monday to do a lot of writing. I had no reporting calls. I was really excited to write the certain part of the book. And I made the mistake of looking at Twitter oh. at one point and just <laughs> there went the rest of my day and the rest of my week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're like a lot of folks at Fox. I mean, nobody uh, saw it coming. Nobody believed it. Now, I mentioned it's been more than a week. We've had a little bit of time to think through this. So where's your head at about what actually happened here? Uh, everybody has theories. You know, there's brand new reporting from from the Times that we will talk about in a moment. Have you pieced it together yet, Jason? No, and no one I've talked to has either. None of the theories that are, you know, that have been circulated in the public and then some theories that I think are still, you know, being discussed privately, none of them really add up or make sense as a, as a silver bullet. Uh, hmm. I, I have not heard a satisfying explanation and none of the people even offering them, I think, feel that they're totally satisfying. I think people are just kind of like, <laughs> you know, taking wild stabs in the dark at this point and trying to piece it all together. But no one I've talked to says that they actually know. Um, they sort of offer a theory and say this might be part of it. And then, you know, obviously the reporting we're seeing seems to be along the same lines. So speaking of that reporting, uh, earlier this week, the New York Times published a text message that was in the Dominion legal filings that was redacted at Fox's behest. 
And according to the Times, it was this text message that was suddenly shared with the board, the Fox Corporation board, basically on the eve of the trial, uh, just days before Carlson was going to take the stand. And according to the Times reporting, it was this text that was so damning, that it was going to be so embarrassing, that the idea that Carlson was going to be asked about it in front of the jury, that he was going to be scrutinized, that this message coming out in public was going to be so devastating to Fox. I don't know if I entirely buy it, but let's look at the text message and analyze it, okay? This is sent by Carlson one day after the insurrection that, of course, he claims wasn't really an insurrection. Uh, This was sent on January 7, 2021. He's texting to a producer. A couple weeks ago, I was watching video of people fighting in the street in Washington. A group of Trump guys surrounded an Antifa kid and started pounding the living shit out of him. It was three against one at least. Jumping a guy like that is dishonorable, obviously. It's not how white men fight. Yet suddenly I found myself rooting for the mob against the man, hoping they'd hit him harder, kill him. I really wanted them to hurt the kid. I could taste it. So Carlson goes on and basically says he realizes, I don't want to be this guy that's rooting for this Antifa kid to die. I despise him, but I shouldn't gloat over his suffering. So Carlson's expressing all the thoughts in his head, his hatred for this kid he's watching get beat on video, but also wondering why he feels that way and knowing he shouldn't do that. So Jason, this text message where he says, it's not how white men fight, does does this explain anything to you? Not to me, because I think he's said stuff on air that is that is worse than that. Um, you know, legacy Americans and and immigrants making the country dirtier. I, I don't see that line as necessarily being that different from stuff he said publicly. And certainly, you know, things he said publicly on that radio show that came up. It just mm. doesn't seem like that line in and of itself would be the kind of thing that would would lead them to fire him two days later. You know, Jeremy Peters, Mike Schmidt, Jim Rudenberg, writing for the Times, say the text message revealed more about his views on racial superiority, right? And so there, there you know, there is an argument that that's what's coming through there in that text, right? That that's not how white men fight. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder if 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 you put yourself in the shoes of the Fox board, and you're thinking about Carlson being on the stand later in the week, and you're aware that many members of the jury are people of color, and you're thinking, how is this jury going to react? to intense scrutiny of every sentence of this text, right? So Carlson's going to be asked on the stand, why did you say it's not how white men fight? How do white men fight? How do black men fight? I mean, I can imagine a scenario where as you go down that road uh, under oath uh, being cross-examined, it's it's ugly, right? I mean, the suit's been settled, so he's not going to get cross-examined about this text. I mean, you could make the case that maybe— they found out about this text and that was one of the reasons they wanted to settle the case because they didn't want to have him on the stand. And that was, you know, one of the the risks. But at this point, him being cross-examined about the text, he's not going to be because the case has been settled. And for all we know, the rest of the messages will never come out, right? All of these redactions in the Dominion filings, uh, it's right now it's a live ball. We don't know if they'll yeah. be released or not. News outlets are pushing the judge to to publicize, to share them. We don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, it's possible they, these messages will never come out. But if they do, to your point, Jason, uh, Carlson was never going to be cross-examined about them because Fox did settle. Now, maybe, in, in again, the Fox board of directors' minds— Maybe they felt this was the the final reason for them to pay even more money to go ahead and reach a settlement, you mm-hmm. know, f- finally pony up as much as Dominion demanded. And uh, and they blamed Carlson for having to pay an extra hundred million. <laughs> and so they threw him overboard. I mean, if we if we play this theory out to the to its eventuality, that that might be the the idea here. But I'm with you. I still think there's more to the story. But are you saying you think that part of why they settled was because of Tucker? Yeah, to avoid him having to take the stand, to avoid him humiliating the company. And do we know that this would have definitely come up in trial? 
Well, he was in line to testify right after Rupert Murdoch, uh, basically week one or the start of week two of the trial. So I do think he would have been t- been asked about this text. I mean, I think there's some reporting that Dominion, the Dominion lawyers were still debating about whether to ask him about the text or not. I mean, mm. he was asked about the text in his deposition. That's kind of the craziest thing is like, is Fox lawyers knew about this for a while. So how did the board only find right. out about it the night before? That makes zero sense. And there's, also- There's incompetence or something else going on there, yeah. And also in the same text message where it was the same thread in which this was redacted, above it was the were the lines saying he hates Trump that obviously made a lot of headlines. Right. So if that was out there and this was redacted, I think that's a little bit of a convenient story. <laughs> well, someone I talked to said that um, the board may have just found out about this stuff, but it wasn't just Fox lawyers who knew about it. Fox executives knew about it. This was not news oh. to them either. Interesting. So, um, yeah. That, and they, this person didn't know if that was true about the board or not, but it, it was certainly true yeah. that, that Fox execs knew. So, Charlotte, you were in Washington last weekend for the White House Correspondents' Dinner weekend festivities, basically lots of parties, lots of media people in the same scene. Was this coming up there a lot? Yeah, it was coming up. I mean, this and Don Lemon, who, uh, you know, was walking around the UTA party. But there are a lot of what are your favorite Tucker theories. And at (laughs) one point I was standing with someone in the Biden administration and another media reporter. And they were like, I think I asked that question and they were like, you know, it's absolutely incredible. We have two media reporters here (laughs) and neither of you have any idea (laughs) what the actual reason is. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of people have suggested that it's kind of a combination of all of these different ones running around. And I believe that. I do think- I do too. I do think people were, you know, you saw last night, as soon as the time story came out, people were like, there it is as if that was the answer to all of this. I mean, obviously, I think this is a big part of it. You know, there's this great tweet by Tim Miller from The Bulwark. He wrote, gotta say all the Tucker leaks seemed like post hoc face-saving nonsense that make the suits at Fox look worse than him. There's nothing in them that are meaningfully worse than what was on air, which they ignored for years. Mm, Right. You have this New York Times reporting, you have Media Matters, the anti-Fox liberal group putting out clips of Carlson off the air. And you're right, none of it, none of it is, you know, I mean, I guess it's debatable, but Arguably, none of it is more disturbing than what was actually on the show. I, I agree with you. It's all about the combination. I think of it, this is about as a bad breakup. We've all we've probably all been there where, you know, you're growing apart from somebody. There's lots of reasons why. There's grievances and slights and resentments that have all added up over time. And, and when one side finally dumps the other, you know, it was never because of one thing. There might have been a final straw. There might have been a final argument. But the breakup was because of dozens of reasons. And, um, you know, to, to me, that's what happened. T- you know, Rupert dumped Tucker probably for a dozen different reasons. You know, Jack Schaefer was talking about how Fox is the star. And in the austings of Glenn Beck and Bill O'Reilly, and that was kind of the underlying takeaway. And I think that in those texts, you can kind of see if that was part of the the calculation here in those texts, you do kind of see Tucker <laughs> seemingly acknowledging that he's believe he's becoming this person that this character he's been playing on air. Mm. I think to a certain degree, you know, mm-hmm. he's saying like, I'm becoming this person I don't want to be. I mean, him saying like, I taste it is particularly unnerving. And so I think that if you're a you know executive at Fox and you already have that in the back of your mind, and then you see this text in which Tucker is kind of saying like, I'm becoming someone I don't want to be. Mm. That probably didn't help. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned Jack Schaefer's column, which Jason, you quoted in your New York Times piece about Carlson. The idea that Fox is the star, not any of the individual hosts or personalities. Fox is the one in charge. But but you argued, Jason, that Carlson could be the exception that proves the rule, that he could be the exception to that. So 
Play that out for us. Let's talk about Tucker's future. What could he do? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I think what he was doing at Fox was was very different than certainly what O'Reilly was doing and Megyn Kelly was doing. And there may be more similarities to what Glenn Beck was doing, but it was still, it was still a different game that he was playing. Mm. And I think that gives him kind of more options and more staying power. He really sort of sank his um his tentacles in some ways deeply into the kind of the conservative intellectual world. He has real ties there and then deeply into the Republican political world. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was he was a real political operator in I think a way that people haven't quite appreciated yet. Mm. The way in which he was you know, screening candidates and selecting them and backing them and and making connections for them. And, you know, some of it obviously occurred on air because he would he would, you know, have them on his program. He'd sort of audition them on Fox on his Fox Nation show mm. um, and see if they're ready for prime time. And then if they if they could do it, he would then have them on uh, you know, on the actual cable show. And that would boost them considerably in their primaries and you know, maybe even help them in the general, not entirely clear. But then off camera, he was going to bat for them with with Trump um, and with other political leaders. And it he was also advancing like a real ideology on his show in a way that, you know, others on Fox have not done before. Um, well, for example, is, on Ukraine and Russia, right? He's been a voice. I mean, I don't know. How would we explain his position on, on Ukraine and Russia? I mean, I think part of it is he is he has become a true isolationist. I think that the Iraq war, I mean, sometimes it's a little hard to know how much to take at face value what he says. But I, I do think Iraq really changed him when it came to his foreign policy views. I think he kind of harbored private doubts. And because of the job he had at the time on Crossfire, where he kind of had to toe the partisan line, and also because of a friendship he had with... Um, uh, Dick Cheney aide, who I think, you know, vouched to him <laughs> that the intelligence was good. He kind of pushed aside his doubts and supported the war. Mm. And then, you know, he got off early. He got off the bandwagon a lot earlier than most conservative pundits. Um, mm. he, he was off, you know, I think in late 2003 after he took a trip there. And I think that really changed his view of foreign policy. And so I think partly it's his, his kind of isolationism. And then I think partly he's bought into the idea of, you know, Putin and the Russians being anti-woke. And he has such a dim view of the West these days that the Putinist critique of the West resonates with him. Mm. And I think that also explains some of his hostility there. Mm. Well, one of the pro-Carlson arguments in recent days has been maybe Rupert Murdoch, this globalist, uh, threw Carlson overboard because he was bucking with the establishment about Ukraine, because he was expressing a different view toward Russia. You know, there there was this meeting between Murdoch and and Zelensky that's been reported. So again, another another theory to throw into the mix, right, Jason? (laughs) Yeah. And so much of what um, Tucker, I think, said on air did kind of run counter to Murdoch's own views. I mean, the idea that, you know, he would insult, uh, you know, General Milley as, as a pig or whatever he called him. I mean, Murdoch, maybe not as much as Ailes, but certainly still in that same way, had such reverence for the military, uh, you know, just Taking on a military leader the way Tucker did, I think, ran counter to the way Murdoch thought in some ways. Mm. But also when the, when the war broke out, wasn't Tucker on Russian state TV? Like, this is also not a new thing. Well, not, I mean, clips of him, yes. Russian state TV <laughs> continues to show lots of clips of Carlson. Well, I guess until the last week or so. 
Yeah, but yeah. he's like making their points for them. So I don't know. That that also doesn't strike me as anything new. Yeah. There was that great line when when Boris Johnson came to Washington, uh, I think it was earlier this year, and was meeting with, um, you know, Republican House members trying to whip up support for Ukraine. And he sort of said, you know, he was just kind of like puzzled. He said, they're afraid of someone named Tucker Carlson. Um, (laughs) Hold that thought more with Charlotte and Jason when we return. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Hive. In your, in your work for the book, and, and, and by the way, I got to admit here, you know, I'm doing a book about Fox also. So we're kind of competing here, Jason. That's what makes it fun. Uh, you have a big head start over me. In your years studying Tucker, right, and thinking about him so deeply, are there aspects you think the rest of us haven't appreciated? He's, I mean, he's a very talented broadcaster. I think, I think people recognize that. He's he's extremely smart. I think significantly smarter than your average cable news host. <laughs> and I think he has he has a pretty coherent ideology and mm. and worldview. He is able to kind of connect the dots across multiple fields in a way that um, I think you don't always necessarily see in that world. Yeah, no, I, I think he's di- he was different on Fox News than basically everybody else on Fox, and it's actually now a challenge as they try to replace him. Yeah, it was it was an unpredictable and uh, I think kind of entertaining show oftentimes in a way that, you know, certainly like Hannity or Laura Ingram are not. You mm. you never quite knew what you were going to get. And um and I think especially during the Trump years when Fox was just such a such a cheerleader for Trump. I mean, there was something about Tucker's um his 
you know, his frustration with Trump and his distance from Trump and kind of his enforcer role in trying to almost make Trump kind of be true to Trumpian ideals. That was, that was kind of interesting. Enforcer is a great word. Yeah. The Trump White House was quite scared of him. Um, You know, Hannity, they knew they had, (laughs) they could, they could get Hannity to say or do anything they wanted. Tucker, there was, there was a lot of concern about about what Tucker was thinking and what Tucker was saying. And there was a lot of outreach towards Tucker. Tucker was not the one calling them. They were calling him and they were trying to get him on board. And I think that grew especially intense around questions of foreign policy, especially with Iran. I mean, you know, Tucker, I think pretty much single-handedly stopped an airstrike against Iran. That that That's not something cable hosts usually do. Yeah, can um, we just st- pause on that for a second? <laughs> okay, we've got to just go a little deeper on that for a second. What airstrike? Just remind us about that incredible moment. The Iranians shot down a U.S. drone, and the U.S. was going to retaliate with an airstrike. And it was um, being encouraged by the Pentagon, by John Bolton, who was national security advisor at the time, by intelligence officials, and Tucker, um, both on air and off air argued strenuously against the U.S. launching this airstrike against Iran. And Trump was not talking to many people who were telling him that he shouldn't do it. And he went ahead and he approved the airstrike and it was ready to go. And I think 10 minutes before it was set to launch, he changed his mind. Mm. And um, there, you know, there were people in the administration uh, who said that there was an estimate about casualties that Trump had received that kind of made an impact on him. But you know, I think Tucker was the one who was the loudest and the most forceful in terms of arguing against it. And I mean, that was the, the crazy thing about the Trump years is that you had Tucker Carlson's A block was kind of taking the place of the interagency process for for a lot of decision making, a lot of policy making. You know, I felt like I accomplished a lot in my years on cable news, but I never stopped an airstrike. <laughs> so I've got to hand it to him. But, but you know, seriously, for all of the criticism of Carlson and the celebration among liberals of his cancellation, there have been a lot of folks, obviously on the right, who are mourning the loss. And I, I mean actually mourning. Like people, people were in mourning last week in the, what do we call the populist right that Carlson represents. And that energy, it's going to go somewhere. You know, it already is starting to go somewhere. Charlotte, what have you seen thus far about, you know, how, how, when we talk about Fox's ratings and what's happened when Carlson uh, was forced out, there was an immediate reaction from the audience. Yeah, I mean, Fox News ratings are down a million, if not more. On uh, April 17th, it was 3.2 million. And on April 26th, it was 1.3. So that's— Yeah, it's a huge loss for Fox. Yeah. And, that, and that's at 8 p.m., but what happens at 8 has consequences for 9, Sean Hannity's hour, which is down, and 10, Laura Ingram's hour, which is down. Yeah. Last week, it delivered its lowest 25 to 54, which is the key demo, non-holiday Wednesday audience in primetime since pre-9-11. Right. Fox's lowest audience since pre-9-11. Which is incredible. And then at the same time, you're seeing viewership at Newsmax surge in the wake of Carlson's departure, in some cases, according to the Times, doubling and even tripling. I um, know the Newsmax part's amazing because you could actually see Newsmax benefit in real time as people learned about Carlson. So that Monday morning, you know, he was, you know, the announcement came out around 1130 a.m. And, you know, it, it ricocheted around social media. And so noon, 1 p.m., 2 p.m., you could actually see Newsmax's ratings rise every hour. And you could see the audience as people, as his fans heard about what happened, 
they went over to Newsmax. Now, not all of them. I mean, Newsmax is still tiny compared to Fox. They're still they're still puny. Um, we're talking about, you know, half a million viewers versus several million for Fox sometimes. But, like, it was an instantaneous reaction from the audience. And here we are talking 10 days later. There's still a portion of the Fox audience that's gone. They haven't come back 10 days later. Yeah, so Tucker's fans have left. The question is what's going to bring them back or— how long will they be right. gone for? I do think, I mean, I was talking to another reporter who said something along the lines of like, you know, these people aren't going to go seek out Tucker on some kind of alternative platform, or at least a large part of them probably won't. They're either going to mm. watch whoever replaces him on Fox or change the channel to something that they know will be espousing something in the same realm, which mm. would probably be Newsmax. I mean, I think people were commenting how when Tucker put out that video after one of the New York Times reports, how small he looked in it, like just being in his studio and not being in front of this Fox News setup and that it just kind of, I mean, I thought he looked pretty similar, but I think it could diminish this power that he had. I mean, I think it takes time to build an audience. He obviously has a massive one, but it is an extra effort to go seek someone out. It is, it is. But I think he's smart enough to get the professional cameras in there and, you know, and, and make it look real when he's ready. You know, I, I viewed last week's Twitter video as a kind of spontaneous kind of I'm pissed off reaction, like pissed off about the leaks against him and kind of rushed onto the camera to say something without really saying much at all. It was in the same studio, but it right. did look so different. And that was revealing in its own way. Stick around. We'll be right back. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Jason, you quoted uh, a uh, person who spoke with Carlson saying, the world is Tucker's oyster. Many billionaires and others with deep pockets would be eager to fund a new venture. Um, any guesses who those those funders might be? Is there more you want to share with us there? No, I don't. I don't have more information on that front, unfortunately. I mean, going back to something you were saying earlier, though, about his audience, I mean, I, I think his audience was sort of two parts. I mean, there were the the real deeply committed you know, national conservative ideologues who valued Tucker because he was kind of getting their arguments out there. And they're going to go with him wherever he goes, I think. And they're going to follow him. The thing that they will be missing and that Tucker will be missing without Mm. Fox is, you know, the villages viewers. Like the old people in the villages who are just watching Fox and then because of Tucker, they're getting exposed to this really like pretty radical fringe stuff. You know, people in the villages don't usually know who Curtis Yarvin is. And the idea that they're now learning about the cathedral and the regime and, you know, the great replacement theory and legacy Americans and the like, that 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 stuff, Tucker was a conduit for that stuff. And he was able to bring it to kind of mainstream Fox viewers and by extension, you know, the mainstream of the conservative movement. That's going to be his challenge and the challenge for these um, these sort of new right figures. Will Tucker still be able to bring their message to the masses in a way? And I think he probably will. I think there are going to be some of those normies will follow him as well. But 
when you think about the average Fox viewer, you know, the, the white retiree and in, in a place like the villages, I think Charlotte's right. I don't know if they're going to be able to figure out how to follow him on Rumble or wherever he winds up. You know, ABC tried something recently in the entertainment space that's similar. They moved Dancing with the Stars, which has a, an older skewing audience, uh, over to Disney+. Plus. Which Tucker was once on. Which he was once on. Oh, that's right. <laughs> one, I forgot about that. One episode. Hey, it's a crossover. And Dancing with the Stars, you know, now it's streaming. They were trying to get people to go over to streaming. And, you know, there's arguments about whether it worked or not. But ABC is moving it back next season, back to the broadcast network. You know, there there is an argument for there's a certain audience. Um, and by the way, I think a lot of older folks would have no problem going and finding Tucker wherever he is. But, but it's true that Fox has such loyalty. People are so loyal to that channel and to their cable bundle, older folks, you know, that, that they will just stick with it no matter what. So Monday is an interesting case study. I'm talking about Monday, uh, May 1st, so one week after Carlson's firing. And the, the numbers are really interesting. Uh, the Five, which is the 5 p.m. talk show on Fox, by far the biggest show on Fox now. 2.7 million viewers, huge hit. And then at 6 p.m., you know, the newscast, Brett Baird, always declines, 2, 2 million viewers. Jesse Waters got back from vacation at 7 p.m., big spike, 2.5 million viewers, Jesse Waters. That's a great sign for Fox, right? That's an argument, by the way, to move him to 8 p.m. Uh, he has a loyal fan base for his kind of uh, jester-type approach to the news. But then, 8 p.m., Lawrence Jones filling in for Tucker— uh, 1.5, 1.6 million viewers. So they went from, you know, 2.5 million for Jesse Waters 7. They lost a million when Tucker's, uh, you know, temporary fill-in came on. And that's going to be the new normal, I think, for a while, where someone like Jesse Waters, he has a, a big audience that will come in and find him, but then the viewers turn on Netflix or they turn on HDTV. Because remember, Jason, when in 2020, uh, with, amid all the big lies, uh, amid the voter fraud conspiracy theories, when... Some of Fox's audience got ticked off about them saying Biden won, and they they turned it off. They didn't all go to Newsmax. Like, some of them just turned off TV. They just didn't want to watch the news, right? They just, they watched reruns on Netflix instead. That's the thing about viewership patterns now is we can't actually see where the audience goes because they often go to streaming or they go in a thousand different directions, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I would love to see the the text messages and emails at Fox now, you know, and compare them to what they were writing and saying in, in the wake of the 2020 election when they were, you know, when they were freaking out that they were, you know, Ross Shaw was doing those presentations about how Newsmax and OAN were trying to steal them. And, you know, Tucker was texting about how they were an existential threat and Murdoch was concerned. I mean, it would be very interesting to see what those people are saying now about about the threats to Fox you right. know, in the wake and whether whether Tucker's firing is as, you know, seminal an event as as the election call. Um, in terms of the, the threat it poses to to Fox's bottom line, because I think I mean, you you got the sense, given the what a momentous decision it was to fire him, that they assumed they were operating under the old rules. That you know, just as we got rid of O'Reilly and we took a brief hit, that this is going to be okay. And and I wonder, you know, if uh, eight days, nine days later, if they still feel that way, or if they're thinking maybe this this will be a little bit more of a, a longer term problem. Mm. And, and and we don't know for sure, but Charlotte, what do you think? <laughs> Clearly, Fox is trying to spin this a certain way. I agree with you guys that it'll be interesting to see what it's like in, you know, 10 days. But I don't know. Do you guys think, like, whoever replaces Tucker is going to kind of espouse that same sort of extremist 
content. Like, Jason, you were saying that the mm. stuff that the people in the villages are getting is pretty extremist stuff. Like, do you think Jesse Waters is promoted there and starts doing that? The idea of Jesse Waters interviewing Michael Anton, <laughs> I, I don't see that one happening. No, I think whoever replaces Tucker will do a show far different from the one Tucker did. And I think, you know, mm. and I think Jesse Waters would be the logical person to to take that slot. Move Waters to eight, figure out something new to do at seven. Yeah, and it will just be a much more kind of typical... Pro-Republican, anti-Democrat, anti-Biden Yeah, and aggressively stupid in a lot of ways. Hey. um, Hey, I don't... Well, sorry, Jesse Waters. But that again goes to this point of where does the energy go, right? Where does the energy go uh, that that Tucker represented, the ideology that he championed, the the ideas that he mainstreamed, some of which I find repugnant, but the things that he was bringing on TV that nobody else was, where does that energy go? And Yeah, I think it it goes with him. I mean, I think that's the, that's, that's why he will be different. You know, when, when other Fox hosts left, there was a, the person who took their place kind of was able to inherit that audience because they were saying largely the same thing. Again, Beck is a little bit different, but, um, but Tucker was the only one saying it, um, and saying it in a way that, you know, mainstream people could understand. I mean, other people are saying it, plenty of, you know, far right people are saying it, but they're not putting it in language that, appeals to and can be understood by mainstream conservatives. And that that's what Tucker was doing, and that was different. We should explain, by the way, you know, the, the stage that Carlson's in right now, uh, which is he's in an exit negotiation. He has to, uh, through his lawyers, haggle the terms of his departure from Fox. And that's why he has not immediately popped up somewhere else. He hasn't just taken his show and put it on a different channel or launched his own network or launched his own Substack. Um you know, as someone who who left a cable news job last year, you know, these things take time. Uh, they can take weeks. They can take months sometimes. Uh, you know, it it's complicated. And he has to negotiate, you know, how much money is he going to get paid out on the way? Uh, uh, what, you know, does he have a non-disparagement clause? Um, does he have a non-compete period where he's not allowed to go on any other network? And that's the stuff that's being haggled about. Jason, correct me if I'm wrong. We don't have a lot of visibility into how that's going. No, um, we have no visibility. <laughs> we know he, we know about the lawyer he hired. Um, right. and uh, Lawyer Brian Freeman, known as a pit bull, represented Megyn Kelly, Chris Cuomo, all those. But but we don't, you know, it's, it is notable. It's been more than a week. Carlson's not sued. You know, there's not like a, there's not, there's not a, not a lawsuit, you know, that's already happened or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the other question for Tucker is, what action does he take against Fox? When I was talking to someone in his camp long before he was fired, they were, we were talking about how Tucker was now bigger than Fox and how, you know, they had, they couldn't do anything about him basically. And and this person was saying that it was almost like a mutually assured destruction pact that <laughs> Fox and Suzanne Scott in particular knew she couldn't fire Tucker because he would burn it all down on the way out the door. But I think that's, you know, that's the other calculus that he has to make and and the degree to which fox becomes part of um they and them in his future broadcasts i mean he already has this wow this us versus them that's the whole show yeah yeah it's the whole show and so does fox join you know wall street and big tech and the republican establishment and you know the woke mind virus victims um does fox <laughs> become part of that and i mean i think it, it, it the, I think the yes. video he put out last week was obviously he couldn't say things quite explicitly in part i think because he's probably negotiating, he's negotiating. his exit but right. it certainly seemed to be you know 
going in that direction about how stupid television was and how you can't hear the truth on there. And, and both parties are, you know, and their donors are conspiring against you. And it seems like Fox is just going to get folded into that. Right. They've been clear to say that he wasn't fired though, right? Isn't that part of it is like they parted ways. I mean, I feel like we've all written about it. We've said that, but someone I was talking to made a point. They were like, well, he wasn't fired. And I don't know if that has to do with the negotiations or if that person. I think what that shows is Fox trying to keep the peace, right? Trying to play this politely, trying to be at least in public, public facing, trying to be courteous. You know, I think what happened that Monday morning is um, they wanted to issue a statement with Carlson, right? And jointly say that he was leaving and jointly say they were parting ways and he wanted nothing of it, right? And uh, and so, you know, then within hours, it became clear that he was fired. There's also a distinction that I think what you're bringing up is important. Fired for cause versus fired without cause. And was he fired for cause? Uh, Don Lemon, who you mentioned at CNN, was fired without cause. You know, they didn't go to him and say, here's the rule you violated. Thus, we're not going to pay you the rest of your contract. Uh, so, you know, my impression is his exit talks have been peaceful. I think with Carlson, it's been a much more fragile piece. Uh, it's probably why he put out his video last week. Um you know, uh, we we don't know the terms of of exactly what it was. I mean, he he claims that he does not know, and that all Suzanne Scott told him in the call was the decision was made from above. Mm-hmm. Um, hey, that's and, how it works. Everybody gets canceled eventually. Yeah. At least almost everybody, almost almost every show. But gets they're canceled both eventually. they're both reportedly getting paid out. Uh, Lemon and Tucker right. are both apparently getting paid out. Yes, although I think the wrinkle there is, it, Carlson could easily make more money from somebody else. Right. So and, and I had a source say this to me, you know, he could he could make 30 million from make up a name, the Daily Wire. Right. And thus not need the Fox payout. You know, he he could just say to Fox, I don't want the rest of the money. Keep your money. I want my freedom. I'm oh, gonna so go then he do, could go talk. I'm going to go it. say whatever I want, wherever I want. Now, it there are still complicated legal talks that have to happen, but that could go there. You know, that could be the way this goes down. Yeah. Um, I mean, Jason, think about how many people have already been bidding for him, you know, like making public offers because they can't yeah. they can't negotiate with him until he's free of Fox, free and clear of Fox. But you've already seen all these places come out, you know, throwing tens of millions at him publicly trying to get his attention. It's- Look, I think money, you know, is not unimportant to him. It obviously has been a great motivating force in a lot of his professional decisions over the years. But at a certain point, and I think especially now with the um, the political and cultural power he was able to amass at Fox, I think... I think his next step will be guided more by keeping or enhancing that cultural and political power than it will be by money. Um, you know, mm. like Chris Ruddy could offer him $40 million. The head of Newsmax. Yeah. yeah, at Newsmax. And I don't think he'd want to work for Chris Ruddy. Doesn't it just, doesn't Newsmax feel too small for him? Doesn't, doesn't almost every place he could go just feel too small? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's sort of the problem. I mean, Fox was the perfect fit for him. It was a very, it was a very rapid ascent there. I I think, you know, it wasn't that long ago that he was, you know, riding a go-kart on Fox and Friends, but once he hit his stride (laughs) at Fox, um, it did become kind of, it it felt big enough for him and it was the right match. And yeah, that's Mm going to be the challenge for him going forward. I mean, the, the point that Charlotte was making about how, how small he looked in that 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 video in his studio. Maybe he needs the green screen with the Capitol in the background. Your point about political power is key. That you know he he he's going to want to retain and grow his political power. Just real quick, do you, do you, do you see him running for president? Should we just keep that door closed, Jason? Uh, 
Okay, just the fact that you hesitated is all I needed to know. Juliana Glover told me she thinks he's going to run. I mean, really? I, this, that's the thing. I don't think he will run for president because I don't think he wants to run for president. But honestly, I think it would make sense for him to run for president at this point. It would be the next step. But I don't know if that's something that he himself wants to do. I, he's he He wants power. He's very ambitious. He likes having influence. But... You have to remember how he feels about politicians, too. Um, I mean, he is so contemptuous of of people who are in politics. There are so few politicians he actually, you know, personally likes or admires mm. or even respects. And I think in some weird way, he would he would have a, a, a mental hurdle there. Mm. Well, the reason I ask is because, Charlotte, you just wrote for VanityFair.com about the leading contender for the Republican nomination in 2024, Donald Trump. And what he'll be doing on television next week. Remind us. Yeah, he's uh, he's going on CNN for a town hall. And, yeah, I spoke to CNN political director David Chalian yesterday about this because I think the number one question people were wondering when this was announced was how does CNN plan to fact check him in real time, given everything we know about Trump? Um, you know, I think CNN and part of its attempt to reset and kind of turn down the volumes from the Jeff Zucker era has— sort of avoided trying to say anything that could be used against them or alienate any viewers. And maybe that's why Chalian didn't go as far to even just say, we'll call a lie a lie. They were kind of like, we're going to treat him like every other candidate. I mean, he did acknowledge that Trump is a unique candidate with unique context, but that despite that context, they're still going to treat him like any other. And they've extended an invitation to all the candidates or potential candidates to participate in their coverage, presidential town halls being a big part of that. Caitlin Collins is great, and she has experience covering Trump and other Republicans, but you can easily envision a situation in which trying to fact-check Trump ends up taking over the entire town hall. And given how easy it is to picture that, it's like, what's really the value here? If you know that that's a very feasible possibility, then what are we even doing here? I mean, I think it's insane that, you know, post-indictment, post-insurrection, two impeachments later, we're still pretending like this is any other candidate. I mean, give him a town hall, but sure, but but don't treat it like it's any other. Mm. I have so many thoughts about this, and there. I'm going to save them. Hold them inside, <laughs> given that it's uh, a lot of my friends over there. But I do think we should revisit that because, look, on the one hand, you have Donald Trump and CNN, you know, uh, town hall coming up. On the other hand, you have Trump attacking Fox, criticizing Fox at every turn. And now Tucker, free of Fox. But I just wanted to paint a picture of where we are in this wild moment where, you know, for all we know, Tucker and Trump team up. Trump for Tucker, all we, 2024. For all, He's I mean, the new running mate. I don't, I don't think Tucker would be VP, right? But, <laughs> Trump VP. <laughs> but I just want to picture, like, all the live wires right now as you have Trump heading in one direction, right, trying to appeal to general media, right, trying not just to exist in the Fox bubble. You have the most powerful figure in right-wing media suddenly a free agent and able yeah. to do whatever he wants. But he was going to be able to do whatever he wanted before. I mean, that's going to be the the challenge for Tucker. I think he really saw himself playing a kingmaker role in 24 in the Republican primary. And the the backstage kind of courting and discussion going on with DeSantis and Trump over the last year, I think has been really uh, an interesting story. And, and it did seem as if in the past, you know, few months, he was like many kind of, you know, conservative pundits and people at Fox was kind of souring on DeSantis and realizing the limitations that DeSantis had and, Mm. and circling back towards Trump. And, you know, I thought it was very significant that 
that Trump did that one-on-one hour interview with Tucker. That was a real sign and a signal, I think. And the, the thing for Tucker now is, you know, how, is he going to be able to play that that role without the Fox platform? You know, I think like the person, the biggest beneficiary from Tucker's firing is probably Nikki Haley, because there was no way on earth she was ever going to get the nomination if Tucker was in the eight o'clock slot at Fox. I think she probably still won't get it. But now, now at least she doesn't quite have to worry about Tucker as much as she did before, because he dislikes her so much. He would just make it his mission to, to torpedo her candidacy. And I think he'll probably still try to do that, but it'll be a little bit more difficult without the eight o'clock slot. Wow. I think it's kind of funny. Also, we're going to see, you know, Trump at 8 p.m. on CNN, see how Tucker's uh, hour <laughs> compares there. Oh, it's going to be an interesting ratings race. Yeah. I feel bad for whoever's the guest host that night on Fox. It's got to be, uh, <laughs> be kind of an ego blow to see your ratings go that well. Yeah, don't feel, don't feel too bad for any of those folks at Fox, okay? Poor Brian Kilmeade. Well, we have a lot to think about here, uh, at least until next week. Charlotte Klein, Jason Zangerly, thank you both. Thanks, Brian. Thanks. Vanity Fair staff writer Charlotte Klein, reader at VanityFair.com, and Jason Zengerly, writer at large for the New York Times Magazine, working on a book about Carlson and conservative media. I can find his recent piece at nytimes.com. This episode was produced by Michael May. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Jordan Bell edited the show this week, and we had engineering assistance from Jake Loomis and Bob Mallory. I'm Brian Stelter. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Stelter. I'm also trying out Blue Sky. I'll see if I like it. You can subscribe to our newsletter at vanityfair.com backslash newsletters. And we'll be back in your podcast feed next week. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 